Welcome to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. I'm a professor, OD consultant, and change strategist, helping individuals and organizations experience life to the fullest and engaging in positive transformational change. In addition to this podcast, please check out my latest book, Embracing Resistance to Change, Facilitating Change Differently Through the Paradox of Resistance, available now through Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. Today I'm visiting with Dr. Angie Keister from Colorado. So Angie, welcome. Hi, thanks Jim. Good to be with you. So um, let's just dive right in. We kind of had kind of a, a, a range of topics. So just start start where, um, how much background you want to provide or just dive right in and talk about your uh, some of the cool projects you're doing and some of the perspectives that you bring to our field. Yeah, sure. So I've been an intentional, not accidental OD practitioner for about 20 years. So I started um, right out of my master's degree into an internal OD consulting role with a truck and engine manufacturing company. And um, I have been an internal consultant for, as I said, about 20 years, and then just recently left to go external. I learned a ton as an internal consultant um, and kind of really looking at the different pieces of, you know, not the politics or the interplay, the dynamics of the organizations. All of that became usable data to me to be able to help with the OD interventions, the OD work. And there are huge advantages of being an OD consultant internally. A lot of times you hear, well, you can't have an unbiased perspective or you really can't get the truth out of people, things like that. I've heard it all. But as an internal consultant, um, when you build those relationships, as well as you hear the commentary or the regular communications within the organization, you have a unique perspective to be able to help guide and shape interventions in ways that maybe externals don't. Um, and so that um, was, it was a great experience for me. Um, I spent a lot of time in the team development and the organizational change space um, and used all of the really good, you know, academic research that I learned through my PhD program Benedictine, and then also just understanding how teams really work in the workplace. But I've always tried to keep up with what's current in the, in the literature and be able to be that scholar practitioner to take the academic findings and translate them in the best way possible into the context of the organization. So um, yeah, I've made good practice of that. And now I am venturing out um, well, I'm already a year in, headed into my second year of external consulting. And I'm finding that one of the greatest advantages is that, that I bring to the table that is something that is useful is that in navigating change, um, I have done, as I'm sure you teach your students to do, tons of employee interviews. So all of the interventions, OD interventions that I do, I start with and then I start with an interview to really, or multiple interviews to really understand what's going on. What does it look like or feel like to sit in the seat of that employee? And in doing that, you get a feel for what it's like to live on that team. What is that lived experience? And then you also get to cross the invisible line into the leadership role as well and see 
what it's like to be in their seats. And we can begin to see the gap that exists between leaders and their teams. And that knowledge is proving to be really, really useful in the external space because knowing how employees think and you know hearing their you know hearing their common you know struggles and hearing the leaders say, well, this shouldn't be an issue, it's perfectly clear, though, you know, things like that. And you hear that those that separation of understanding in terms of the realities within the organization. And I really try and bring those closer together in my work. And there's lots of ways to do that, as you know, through large group interventions or do that with um, small team dynamics or team effectiveness. So how, how do you identify the individuals to start out interviewing? Well, it depends on the size of the team. Size of the team. So for me, if it's a small team, I'll interview everybody. And I will, I take a narrative approach so that I am gaining, allowing them to go where they like um, with, you know, guidance in terms of here are the critical areas that I need to clue into and then let them just ask them to tell me what it's like. So I just did an interview with a team of 11 people and um, each person I asked them to tell me if I was a new person joining your team tomorrow, joining your team and you and I already had a really good established relationship what would you tell me? How would you tell me to get started? What would you, what advice would you give me to get started quickly? And then let them go wherever they need to, to be able to explain what it's like to get up to speed on this team. And I think just that question alone works really well because you want to help a new person come on the team and in your helping of that new person um, get acclimated, you're also sharing a lot about like what's the culture of the team, what's the microculture of the team, what are the watch out points? Like for that team that I just completed the interviews for, it was obvious that there was no onboarding process. And absolutely, as a new member of the team, you had to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you had to get in there, ask questions, and it was a self-serve situation. Um, and if you didn't do that and you weren't that self-starter, then you weren't going to survive on the team. And there was evidence that the turnover of the past had, you know, had created that. Um, or sorry, that the evidence was that the non not having onboarding uh, for the team actually created that turnover. So, <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the, the idea of appreciative interviewing from, yes. from the, the book, The Encyclopedia of Positive Questions. Absolutely. I love those story guides. I use them all of the time. Um, it's lots of incredible incredible, incredible resource. If I'm stuck and need to, you know, find a way to get started, I always turn to that book to be able to kind of come up with some good questions or ways to position stories. I also learned from my work um, internally when I was doing some user experience or customer experience research um, internal with the organization, I learned some ways to gather the qualitative with a quali well, qualitative plus the quantitative research combo is incredibly powerful. So whenever you can get both of those together, like an employee engagement survey plus interviews together, that's always the best way to understand what's going on. But um, another question that I gained from my experience in that other internal role was to ask for an analogy. So if you, if I, if you had to describe this team as it, give an analogy to describe this team, what would it be? How would you do that? So, um, you know, you get everything from, gosh, we're a short order cook restaurant 
to this is um, this is like dealing with air traffic control in an airport, and it's just there's lots of different ways that people find to to describe when they can describe it through an analogy or metaphor, and also pictures are a great way to kind of get out that qualitative view because those stories are embedded in the they know it they're living it but they often become so part of the context that they're in but they're hard to unearth and so sometimes you have to try unique ways not tricky ways but unique ways um like asking them to select a, select a picture that represents the way they feel about this change then they can describe the picture and that gives you data and i absolutely do not hesitate calling it data gives you data to be able to understand what their lived experience is. And from that lived experience, I then can really start to help shape what, what would be the intervention, what would be the change support that we could create for them. Um, and I think that's an important part. I think that action research approach is um, that I choose to use a lot in my work is incredibly important because gathering data along the way Change plans are out of date the minute that you create them. So planning feels good. It feels neat and tidy. It feels like you have a good handle on a chaotic situation. But action research, which is gathering up data, understanding the situation, and then being able to make, it, make your first or next step based on what you know to gather your next bit of information, um, that type of working um, it lends itself to quicker change, I think, because you have lots of people involved, and you also have data that you're gathering along the way. So, how do you um, how do you feed back that that, that information back to the client? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. Go ahead. Or back to the team. Back to the team. Yes, I'm so glad you asked that question because I don't think that happens enough. I think OD practitioners might have lost that really important piece, and when I um, mentor OD practitioners, I'm always reminding them that that data that you've collected is not yours. And it is not for the collector to become the smartest, wisest person in the room. It is to be shared out back to the people that you've collected it so that they can see themselves through another's eyes, which we know through um, generativity research and so forth when and AI that if people can be able to play back and see their story told by another, they can learn from that and they can change from that. So the way that I do that is that I'll put together um, anonymous theme, like themes that are anonymized back to the leader and to the team. Um, but first to the leaders and just give them the heads up. Here's what we found. Here's the information. Here are the major themes. Here are some things that I'm thinking about that we could, first steps we could take. And then um, ask them to share those themes back with the team. I can be there, but to be able to have them share what, what was heard and how that went um, in terms of the themes that we collected. Do you, do you sometimes get pushed do you sometimes get pushback from the leadership with the yeah. theme sharing? Leaders always push back. It's kind of their job to push back and everything. But but I think that leaders I find to be incredibly vulnerable when it comes to getting employee voice. Um, and they, they're hesitant in that vulnerability. They don't really know how to manage those collective, that collective voice, that collective thought in all cases. So I get pushed back because people don't, they don't, some leaders don't want to make it fully transparent what's going on in the team. 
But I often remind them that the team already knows, like, this is the team's data. We just took it and we summarized it and themed it for you. It may feel very revealing to you, but it is actually already known. It's like taking a 360. Any person that takes a 360 it feels incredibly vulnerable to get that data back. And it feels like, oh my gosh, I don't want to share this with anybody. I want to keep it secret. But it's not secret. Everybody who gave you that feedback already knows that about you. So um, so I don't mean to be so flippant about it. I, I, I try not to, although my personality sometimes puts it there. But, um, but it is, um, for a leader, I just help them know that they already know. And in good service, in an OD best practice, we absolutely have to give this data back to the team so that they can see themselves and start to learn. So how, how do you, I mean, I imagine it's some type of like shared partnership of navigating what the next steps are then when you feed that data back to the, the reader, kind of like, okay, what now, what's next? Yes, yes, yes. So I will prepare the leader for what they're willing to say yes to before we walk into those meetings, like setting up the guidelines and principles for what is their desired state for how do they want this team to perform or how do they want this change to continue um, and helping the leader be really clear on what those principles and those guardrails are for them so that when we walk into the debrief of the team, that it's not a free-for-all. It's not like, oh, yes, everyone can have whatever they want, whatever they want, and all is good, and now you're happy, right? That's actually not effective, obviously. So um, that's what I try and do with leaders, help them get more comfortable because they have those guidelines and principles, and their values are super clear in how they want to move forward with the team. I was, I was distracted for a moment with one of my um, creatures here at the house. <laughs> Creatures. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I lost my train of thought. Mm -hmm. uh, That's all right. Uh, may I say one other thing about kind of navigating change? I think this is the most yeah. important piece. Yeah. So um, one thing is a trend that has been happening for a while, so I don't know that we can call it a trend any longer, is that with change management. So OD, organization development has always been about organizational change. Always been about that from its inception, right? So um, absolutely focus on organizational change. Where OD might have lost its footing is in irrelevance and simplification and broad application of, of ideas without, the, without you know, the, the time spent to understand the principles and practice and the um, really good use of, of methods and frameworks and tools. Um, so because of, because I don't know what the, I don't know what created this, but there's definitely a lot of tools on change management out there. There's lots of, lots of companies that are doing lots of toolkits and lots of methods and certifications on change management. Um, and I'm, I won't get on a soapbox, although I have one in this space, is that, I think that OD has a huge advantage that's underused and something that I'm using in my practice is that we can help organizations navigate change. We can help organizations make the first step, make a change, and then transform to the next one. And I think that that is really important because organizations are desperately trying to get a hold of the chaotic environment that they have in front of them, especially when they're at the precipice of really needing to make big change. 
but they will put a lot of effort into plans, a ton of effort into basically itemizing all the things that need to be different. And in doing so, it feels like it's getting orderly and feeling in control, but then we're losing employee voice. We're losing a lot of really good um, opportunities for engagement, for getting that culture to shape and getting that strategy to take hold in the minds and hearts of every person in the organization. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, I think that's, that's, why, yeah, and that's why I really like org development as opposed to the yeah. phrase change management, because it seems like a lot of change management that's out there is really project management. Yes, it is. It is. It absolutely is. And I have been stuck in too often in places where I have a, a project management owner, you know, looking at me and saying, where's your plan? You don't have a plan? I need your change plan. What's your change plan? And you, you need to get a plan to have your change plan and all sorts of planning. And I'm not opposed to planning. I actually like planning quite a bit. But I think that that employee voice is so, so important. It's a really differentiating feature of organization development. If you can help employees get engaged and help them see that they are the change that needs to be made, like they can make small changes, which all add up into these bigger changes. And we have all the practices and principles and proven methodologies to use. Um, and I think that well, I, I don't I don't know what happened, has to happen next, but I do think that organization development really is needed right now in with all of the chaotic environments of change that's going on. Do you, do you find some leaders kind of, um, I don't want to use the word fearful, but maybe reluctant or um, skeptical around large group engagement, getting all the voices in a room and just... The idea, of, of the idea of not having as much control. As much control. Yeah, I think that there's, there's the age-old problem of loss of control. There's also the, the fear of like time is money. And if I have all of that money in the room, then, you know, all those salaries in the room, then how in the world will I justify the return on the investment that I've made? And it is a bit of a trust me, we've got this kind of situation, right? Like we know as OD practitioners that when we have all the voices in the room and we have the fullest picture of the system that we can get, that we can start to see the interrelatedness and actually make change happen while we're in that room. Mindsets can start to shift, questions can start to be asked differently, connections across silos can be made very easily. All of those things, those those factors that that hold hold resistance for change, can disintegrate in moments when you get that in the room. But leaders, unless they've experienced it, they they or have a high high trust relationship with the OJ practitioner, it's hard for them to willingly get that in the room. So I found I have to do it in bits and pieces, right? So I can't take three days and do offsets anymore like that. That never happens in my internal practice or in my external practice. And that is just, it's just more uncommon than common now, I would say, for lots of reasons. But being able to do it in bits and pieces. So if they're already doing a town hall or they're already bringing the group together for a division meeting, asking for a time slot, asking for an hour where I can do action research 
and learning right there with the group to give them a taste test of what that's like. Usually what that results in is I have, you know, two hours of town hall meeting and I'm able to do the action research with an appreciative inquiry questionnaire. And then people are like, wow, this is so helpful. And when the leader gains that support and hears it from their people, then they're more likely to say, okay, Angie, how do we do more of this? What do we do? Yeah, and I know one of the things yeah, that you're really um, gifted at that I'm really been impressed really with is your facilitating in the virtual space. So talk talk about that like in terms of consulting in a, in a virtual environment. Yeah, I'm still learning as we all are in this virtual environment, but I have found that um, you know when you can, I created early in the pandemic, jumped to virtual. Um, virtual facilitation, not just Zoom calls, but actually creating uh, VR spaces where it was as if we were bringing people to the same conference room. And the benefit for OD practitioners and the cost savings is ridiculous because you don't have to rent a hotel. You can give every, rent a VR headset for every person, have it mailed to their house, have them join the, the meeting through their VR headset. And then you have everybody there that's working on post-it notes, working on the walls, walking around, talking. Um, there's some really, really great virtual spaces out there where they have made it meeting-like and not just sitting in chairs meeting-like, but actually interactive where you can be person to person and have the background noise exist, but not drown out the one-to-one the -one contact. So. Um, I have found, I still haven't figured out all of the org behavior pieces behind this, but as far as recreating what it's like when you're in, uh, if you were bringing everybody to a hotel space or a conference space and having them all in the same room, that can be recreated very easily by having everybody in a VR headset. The challenge is that, um, which is you know an unexpected challenge, but there are somewhat symptoms that come from being in a VR headset for too long. So we've learned that it has to be a both and meeting design where you can be in the VR headset for about an hour and then people start getting a little bit either dizzy or headaches and we have to make sure that we give them time away from that, which means we then bring them to the computer or we have them do some individual reflection where they can actually get off camera. Um, and we have to be just mindful about how we how we guide people's attention. Um, but the virtual space is fan when we set up those virtual VR spaces, people have so much fun. They're, and if they're not in headsets, they're on their computers and it works just as well because they're able to interact and you still have that story sharing, storytelling. It reminds me of the Matrix where you can only stay under so long. Yeah, that is. You have to come back or you're, you're forever lost to the, to the VR world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know if it gets that bad. I haven't, oh, I haven't experienced it. But when my kids test out my conference rooms, when I have them send them in, um, they get they could be in there for hours just playing tag and get lost quite quite easily. So if my eight year old and six year old can can manage a VR room, absolutely anybody can because um, and they have fun with it. Yeah, you got built in test subjects that are perfect for the I technology. Do. And I use them all the time without IRB acknowledgement for sure. <laughs> oh, the benefits of being a parent. <laughs> no, right. We're responsible for their health and well-being. Yeah. yeah. Well, Angie, this has been fun. Um, I'm looking at the time, and I know that you've got to, uh, you've got a, a meeting that you've got to run to. Um, I, I think um, definitely want to have some follow-up around the 
that notion of the internal versus external consulting. And um, I'm going to get you and um, try to get you face to face or virtually face to face with some of my my students to talk about that because I think they would be really beneficial for them. So um, thank you for um, for this time. And so um, it went way too fast. I thought, oh, 30 minutes. Yeah. And now, like, yeah. oh, now we have still so much to cover. So yeah. well, it was a good talk with you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being yeah. on here with you. I, I appreciate your time and and uh, yeah, I'm gonna play around some more with that virtual space that you shared with me, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. For sure, sounds good. Yeah, and let me know how I can be of help to your uh, to your class or in any other way. All right, perfect. Take care. Very good. Take care. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. you've enjoyed listening to chatting about change with dr jim maddox if you want to connect more you can follow me on twitter instagram or facebook and at my website drjimmaddox.com thanks for listening